Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. You're with Give the People What They Want. Um, that's Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Show 154. Um, 154 seems like a lot of shows, but if you look back and think about what kind of things we've covered, um, there's been a lot of war that's been on the table. It's pretty shameful how frequent we have to cover um, war and so on. You know, it's it's a pretty shameful situation. But nonetheless, that's where we are. Reports coming from Gaza continue to be horrific. Um, the United Nations says that they have actually documented evidence of war crime. I want to start with one of them, which is a report that was put out by the Human Rights Agency of the UN, which suggests that they received what they call disturbing information. This is two days ago on the 20th of December, the summarily killing of 11 unarmed men in front of their family members in the Al-Ramal neighborhood in Gaza City. Um, what they said is between um, the night of the 19th December into the 20th, the uh, Israeli Defense Force surrounded and raided the Al-Auda building. Um, this building is in the Al-Ramal neighborhood. Three related families were taking shelter in that building, in addition to the Anan family, the main family that lives in the building. Um, the Euro Med Human Rights Monitor, UN and others, uh, interviewed and, and saw sources telling them that the uh, Israeli Defense Forces entered the building, separated the men from the women and children, and then shot and killed 11 of the men, most of the men aged in their late 20s and early 30s in front of their family members. Then, allegedly, they ordered the women and children into a room and either shot at them or threw a grenade into the room, reportedly seriously injuring some of them, including an infant and a child. This entire incident, the reason I'm... Um, you know, describing the entire incident. This is one incident in the last 48 hours or so. Um, 300 Palestinians have been killed. But this is one incident where there are eyewitnesses who document one particular war crime. Uh, this is, again, part of a process of wiping out either entire families or the men in a family, wiping them all out. But there's something egregious in this of going into an apartment building, separating men and women, and then killing the men in front of the women. Feels like something from another planet, something that has been conjured up um, by um, a novelist. Doesn't seem real at all, but indeed this is where this war has gone, uh, continues to be like that. The UN has now shown that around 20,000 uh, people have been killed in Gaza. That's 1% of the population. You know, I've been over this before on give the people what they want. 1% of a population, you know, by and large, okay, that just seems like it's not such a big amount of people. But I want you to consider if you take a population, say, United States, 300 and some odd million, 1% is a lot of people. 1% of Gaza is a lot of people. Um, and as I mentioned to you already uh, in the last show, 
They are wiping out entire families for whom it's not 1% that's being killed, but 100%. Um, United Nations, again, uh, trying to pull together various forces to talk about ceasefires and so on. This uh, idea just falls off the table. You know, they've come up with some new terminology, really strange language, sustainable ceasefire, humanitarian pause. These are new words. They don't really mean anything. What is a sustainable ceasefire? That's the phrase used by Lord David Cameron of the United Kingdom, uh, giving the reason why the UK decided to abstain on the vote on the ceasefire in the UN. Meanwhile, got to be said that this war has escalated into the region. It has escalated certainly into the Red Sea, the Gate of Tears, where the Yemeni forces are beginning to mine uh, the waters, warning the United States that if U.S. ships come near, the Yemenis will fire at them. In fact, um, there are reports of Yemeni forces already firing out into uh, the Bab al-Mandab um, towards um, you know, uh, what they see as hostile militaries that come are coming close to the waters of Yemen. Um, you know, if Ansar Allah in Yemen is taking this kind of position, Hezbollah in the region, um, in the southern region of Lebanon, also very active, ready to continue this fight. One of the great dangers of not having a full ceasefire now is that this is going to become, and indeed already has become, a regional war. That's where we are in Gaza. But again, let's not forget, this is one war of many that we've been covering. Another conflict, a serious conflict, has been in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Well, the Democratic Republic of the Congo just had another election. This is the second um, civilian transfer of power in that country. Prashant, what happened in the Congo's election? Right, that's a very good question because the Congo's election, which is supposed to uh, be held on one day, that's the 20th of December, uh, you know, went into the second day, that's the 21st, because the sheer amount of chaos uh, that accompanied the process, voters finding it difficult to vote, some reports of violence as well. And the important thing to note is that this was predicted way back because the chaotic, completely chaotic way in which the elections had been organized, there had been a revamp of the electoral roll system. A lot of irregularities reported by activists, which uh, People's Dispatch also has covered. A few days ago, we did have a report by our colleague Tanupriya on the context in which uh, the DRC elections are being held. And it's very important to note two or three elements uh, as, as far as these elections are concerned. One of which, of course, uh, is what Vijay, you mentioned, which is the conflict in the eastern part. The M23 rebel group backed very clearly by uh, Rwanda, a close ally of the United States and a close ally of the United Kingdom. Uh, of course, we've been hearing about the Rwanda deal for some time now. Uh, but, uh, you know, Rwanda has been backing the M23 rebels, which have played a huge role in uh, continuing warfare in that uh, in, in that region, despite multiple, uh, multiple you know, declarations of truce, despite all these attempts by regional forces to sort of bring about some kind of a truce, the war has continued with the explicit backing of Rwanda. That is one aspect of it. And now the second aspect is that Felix Shisekedi, the incumbent president who's seeking a second term, is viewed by a large section of the population as very compromised, starting from the fact that the last election in 2018 itself, 
was viewed as compromised because of a deal he struck with the former president Joseph Kabila. And uh, the deal between Shesikiri and Kabila is believed to be the reason uh, for, so activists have actually contested the fact that Shesikiri even won the elections, but that it was basically a result of a backdoor negotiation uh, between key regional powers, between Kabila and Shesikiri, which uh, allowed uh, Shesikiri to sort of become the president. So here we have a president who from day one, his whole legitimacy to remain in power has been questioned. And now he's seeking a second term at a time when uh, the, the, the M23 rebellion back by Rwanda has considerably sort of, uh, you know, uh, caused huge amount of uh, number of deaths. The government's own forces responsible for uh, attacks on civilians, including a massacre recently. But like our colleague uh, Kambale Musawri has mentioned in this article that ultimately this election, as other elections in the past, are really a test, a question for the sovereignty of the people of DRC, who are in this, uh, you know, in this strange but not so strange position of having, uh, of sitting on top of one of the vastest uh, mineral resource hordes in the world, but are suffering from immense poverty. And, you know, it's basically the, the companies, the multinationals were benefiting and the attacks by Rwanda for or Rwanda backed attacks, for instance, are seen as a pretext for this kind of mass looting of resources, while the people who are supposed to have sovereignty over these resources are not able to, uh, in any sense, benefit from them. And not only that, are also not able to even have the sovereignty to elect their own leaders. So this, I think, has been the real challenge for the people of DRC over the past uh, many, many years, we have seen this continuously raised by activists. We have seen this call for justice for Congo, uh, of uh, you know, for starting from the genocide that took place in the late 90s, in which Rwanda and Uganda were involved. And to this day, these countries, as well as other countries in the region, interrupting the sovereignty or disrupting the sovereignty of the DRC. And that has been the central crisis, the central conflict in that region, that for the pursuit of mineral resources, these neighboring countries backed by the United States, backed by the United Kingdom, have pursued this policy of fomenting uh, you know, violence and chaos in the DRC. So we're, we're going to wait for the results and see, but many activists fear that that is not really going to change the situation on the ground. This question of sovereignty, this question of control over your destiny, this question of control over your resources, this question of building a better life, of eliminating poverty, it requires uh, you know, uh, the people to be able to and not and to, to not face this kind of a proxy war. And that will still remain the fundamental question in the DRC even after these elections. You know, one of the great loan words from Hindi or Hindustani into English is the word loot. Uh, this word comes into English after the rebellion of 1857-58 was crushed by the British forces uh, allied by the royal families of the region. And afterwards, the troops were told they could go and loot um, the people whom they had overthrown. Well, Congo is a country, the Democratic Republic of Congo experienced immense looting. And now uh, Argentina, with this new president in power, has decreed a number of things. Open door for the looting of Argentina, Zoe. Mr. Millet, Mr. Loot. Yeah, and I think I'll just warn everyone right now, I think we're going to be talking about Argentina a lot because uh, the level with which uh, Millet has been empowered to take forward the most backwards economic policies against a, a population that's already reeling from an economic crisis is, 
is really ridiculous. And of course, this is going to be confronted by the mass organizations on the streets. And that's exactly what we've seen so far. Uh, you know, again, in these, now it's been 12 days of Millet in office, and he has, uh, by decree, uh, essentially uh, implemented a series of legislations. Um, one in particular, which is the labor form, which again, he, he implemented by decree uh, in modifying 300 labor regulations affecting 11 labor laws. Um, and this is largely uh, attempting to just right off the bat uh, hit people where it hurts, affect, for example, how much they're paid for overtime, um, change, for example, how much they're compensated if they're fired or let go, um, change, for example, who is allowed legally to strike. Um, this is a trend that we've seen across the world that people understand that there are there is going to be a response from the streets um, and that the executive, as much as possible, um, has to do everything that it can to make sure that people's uh, right to strike, their right to protest, um, their right to demand better conditions is done in the most uh, vulnerable way possible. So, for example, this, these modifications to the labor laws says that, the, that there are certain activities um, that cannot fully go on strike and that if they do go on strike, they face penalties. Um, and we've seen this again, we've seen this in many different countries, countries across Europe. Um, and this is clearly preparing for the scenario where people's economic situations are going to be in a very bad state. Even Millet himself has said these months are going to be bad. We saw last week, we started off with, um, you know, the, the currency devaluation, um, the cutting of the state budget. Now we're seeing, okay, in order to prepare for this scenario where we know that people are going to be pushed further into poverty, now we're going to take away their right to strike. Um, we're going to make sure that every single hard fought for victory, the labor rights, having access to overtime pay, all of these other things, which not even all of the Argentine population even enjoys because of course we know that so many people are employed in the informal sector but these few rights which a small portion of the working class even has access to even those are just being completely taken away um but again we have seen such a strong response on the streets already um day-long protests the famous piqueteros are back we're going to see a period of high, high, high mobilization in Argentina. Um, of course, this is seeing people are going to be suffering even more, but I think we're going to see a rebuilding of workers' power, a rebuilding of organizations. Um, and it's only, and December is a historic month for Argentina and marks, of course, the uprising uh, in 2001, where they actually drove a president out of office. We know the Argentinian people are capable, so I think we're going to see some very, very interesting months. People are not happy with what Mila is doing. Um, and again, as you said, he's also opening the door for uh, deregulating the financial markets. It's across the board, hitting people where it hurts and making it possible for big capitalists to get away with what they want. Yeah. You always give the people what they want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Really happy to be with you. This is 154th show. The next two topics we're going to touch on are, in fact, a little related. Um, they're related because they have to do with individuals who have been caught up in the kind of, um, let's call it, 
the imperialist struggle, I can't think of a less ideological phrase uh, that is being taken place around the world. The first is, of course, Julian Assange, who remains in Britain and Prashant is going to take us there. But then after that, um, Alex Saab, who was a Venezuelan, is a Venezuelan diplomat. Uh, Zoe will go there after that. I mean, one case, a case of great um, sorrow, Prashant. The other, well, there's a little bit of good news, but why don't we go to Assange first? A case of some tribulation. Right, Vijay, of course, uh, we just got to know a few days ago that uh, Julian Assange's appeal will be heard by a two-judge bench of the High Court of Justice in the United Kingdom. This is on the on, on, on after the 20th of February. It's a two-day hearing. And this will basically be challenging. Julian Assange will be challenging a single judge, a single judge's order, which basically pretty much dismissed his grounds of appeal. Now, uh, you know, for keeping the legalese aside, we know that Assange has been uh, in Belmarsh prison since 2019, since April 2019. That's uh, four and more than four and a half years. And it's important to note that right now he is not facing any charge. He has been held in jail because the US government wants to extradite him. And they want to, in the United States, indict him or charge him on 18 counts, including 17 counts under the Espionage Act. The first time a publisher is facing charges under the Espionage Act. The total jail term for all these charges together is 175 years in prison. But it's not just what happens at the end of the trial as much as even while being held for trial, the kind of uh, you know, uh, horrible conditions he's going to be held uh, you know, when, uh, when the trial takes place as well. Now, these are all well-known facts. And these, the fact remains that also, time and again, medical experts have certified that Julian Assange is also, uh, there is a suicide risk there. And all these factors were considered by uh, Judge Vanessa Baretsa, who basically said that Assange should not be extradited uh, to the United States. Uh, but uh, the later courts basically pretty much overturned that verdict. And they overturned that verdict purely based on uh, as, you know, assumptions or assurances given by the United States. It's that, oh, we'll treat, them, treat him well, et cetera, et cetera, which are, you know, it's, it's quite absurd to say the least. But more importantly, I think we need to remember two things. One is, of course, the fact that uh, why is Assange in this situation today? And while we've talked about it on this show, on People's Dispatch many, many times before, we have, uh, you know, we have written articles about it. It's very important to remember that Assange is in jail for the crime of journalism, for exposing uh, the kind of war crimes, for exposing the kind of atrocities that the United States and its allies committed. That is basically his crime, and that is why he's been hounded all these years. We're talking about over a decade of being hounded by the richest, by the most powerful country on this earth, one man and his project. And especially that one man being hounded in various ways, culminating in him being dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy in 2019. And I think the other important thing to remember is that, uh, you know, even by the standards of any, even by any standards of justice, this whole legal process has been a complete farce because we know that uh, Assange and his lawyers were spied on. We know that even while Assange was in the Ecuadorian embassy, there were plans to actually assassinate him, which were being considered at the levels of the United States government, the Donald Trump administration at that time. We know that you know, there have been so many aspects of miscarriage of justice that by, uh, by, by any standard of the law, Julian Assange should be allowed to walk free immediately. But nonetheless, this pretense of a, 
Our legal processes continue. The Sanjay and his team continuously are resisting the fact. This fact has been re recorded by leaders across the world. We had Latin American leaders, especially, take a very powerful stance, calling uh, for the release of Assange, recognizing his contribution to journalism, to giving people the kind of information they need to make the right decisions. We even had uh, uh, the irony of ironies. You had right-wing Republicans uh, come on board to say that you know what is happening is not right. We've had parliamentarians in Australia are doing that. But despite all this, this current Joe Biden administration, which is, you know, which so, uh, which kept claiming that how we are so different uh, from Donald Trump and his regime, nonetheless continued that persecution and is continuing that persecution today. So very important days, uh, February 20th and 21st, I believe, there are going to be huge protests across the world. There's already been a call given for these protests. So we're going to see people, uh, and maybe for that matter, even leaders issuing statements, but people across the world taking to the streets to express solidarity with Assange and to basically say that journalism is not a crime. Journalism is not a crime. Julian Assange, of course, mainly a publisher. And that's important to say because at the time when WikiLeaks published um, the findings that were given to them by Chelsea Manning, so did the New York Times, so did the Guardian, so did the Hindu. So did a number of newspapers around the world. Um, and it is quite shocking that these newspapers aren't almost daily calling for the release of a fellow publisher. Uh, that's the shocking part of this. Um, Alex Saab is not a publisher. He's not a journalist. He's a businessman, also a diplomat. Picked up very strangely, Zoe, held in, again, strange circumstances. And now equally in strange circumstances released. What's going on with Mr. Alex Saab of Venezuela? Well, he arrived back uh, to Venezuela, Caracas, um, greeted by President Nicolas Maduro and his family, uh, who have been fighting tirelessly for his release since he was detained in Cape Verde uh, in June 2020. Um, so it was, he's had a very, um, complicated road to say the least. Um, Alex Saab was a Colombian businessman who started working with the Venezuelan government. Um, and he was a very crucial element, a very crucial person in essentially negotiating deals that would help kind of uh, break the sanctions. So um, when you're a country like Venezuela and you're facing one of the harshest sanction regime regimes that exist today, um, not currently, but at the, at the time from, you know, about 2016 to 2020, 21, um, Venezuela was essentially banned from doing business with anyone. Very few governments would actually do this business. And so how are they going to import food during a pandemic? How are they going to import supplies to build homes to the people? How are they going to maintain any of the basic and fundamental services that they provide for their people? Um, and Alex Saab was essentially one of those people who, through his expertise, was able to broker these deals um, and actually get food uh, imported into Venezuela. Of course, um, on a parallel note, there is a process within Venezuela to make sure that Venezuela can also be uh, food sovereign and produce its own food. But that doesn't take away the fact that actually you need to do trade with other countries and that uh, you can't actually survive just yourself by yourself. Um, and in this context, uh, the US government sanctioned Alex Saab and said that actually this businessman and who was later 
uh, appointed as a special envoy of the, of the Venezuelan government in his capacity, um, it, which is a diplomatic title, um, the U.S. government said that he had engaged in money laundering, uh, in corrupt acts, et cetera, et cetera. And he was put on the sanctions list. Um, just to remind people, there's dozens of people in Venezuela who are sanctioned. Um, the U.S. government, their tactic of sanctions is not only to strangle the financial markets, um, you know, uh, usurp, for example, Venezuela's CITCO, um, and prevent it from engaging in certain financial transactions, but also to make anyone who's related to the Venezuelan government in any capacity make their lives a living hell. Um, and this doesn't just block them from visiting the United States, but it also just puts, uh, in many senses, kind of a target on their back. Um, there's literally a bounty on the head of Nicolas Maduro from the U.S. government. Um, so Alex Saab, again, was sanctioned by the U.S. government. And then when he was traveling uh, from Venezuela to uh, the Middle East, he was detained in Cape Verde when his plane was refueling. And he was held in Cape Verde um, for, uh, I think, over 500 days, essentially at the behest of the U.S. government. Um, this case, again, was met with many, many irregularities. Why was he detained? He's a diplomat. Um, under what grounds? And then, shockingly enough, he was extradited to the United States from Cape Verde, two countries who don't have an extradition agreement. He was held in the United States and through intense, intense negotiations and many different fronts, um, he was finally released in a prisoner exchange between Venezuela and the United States. He is back in Venezuela. He gave a press conference with Nicolas Maduro, with his wife, who was one of the forefront uh, people fighting for his release. Um, and I think that, again, this has to be seen in the larger geopolitical scenario uh, where Venezuela, despite being you know, a declared enemy of the United States also has something which the United States desperately needs, which is oil. Um, and so I think that they're coming around because of their desperate situation. Their neighbor has oil. It's a lot easier than dealing um, with other dynamics uh, that it is unwilling to. Um, so I think that we're seeing a softening, a de facto recognition of the validity and the legitimacy of Nicolas Maduro's government so it'll be interesting to see what happens next year, 2024, Venezuelan presidential elections. Well, so the sanctions on Venezuela, pretty harsh. The United States today ordered new sanctions, not only against Russia, but against any institution that enables Russia to do business, hitting Austria's Riefensen Bank International, hitting Italy's Unicredit, hitting the OTP Bank in Hungary an attempt to go after Russia. But, you know, it's interesting. These sanctions haven't really hurt Russia that much. Earlier, I mentioned Ansar Allah in Yemen saying that they won't allow certain ships to go through the Bab al-Mandrab, the Gate of Tears. But they said Russian ships can go through and ships carrying Russian oil can go through. Uh, this has become a real point of contention how these sanctions are working, whether they are going to be something the United States is going to find valuable to push even harder on. Um, meanwhile, the uh, sense of remove that the Biden administration is facing from the rest of the world escalates, trying to push hard on this campaign in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukraine war, as we mentioned last time, looks largely at least the possibilities of any advance stalled. Uh, no possibility there. Uh, in the middle of all this uh, news comes from New Delhi that the Indian government has decided, Mr. Biden, 
you are not going to be the chief guest this year at the um, at the Republic Day ceremonies. It's going to be Emmanuel Macron of France. Uh, this is an interesting case, um, the case of India and France. Uh, underneath this case, of course, is a uh, indelicate, you know, agreement to buy French uh, military equipment. You know, in in the last BRICS meeting, there was a push to get Algeria entry into BRICS, and in at least Algeria, people are convinced that it was India carrying the water for France that blackballed the entry of Algeria into BRICS um, at the last meeting. They might come in come in through the next meeting. It's very interesting, you know this whole thing about um, the, the lowered role of the United States in the world, the fact that the Indian government can rescind an invitation to Joe Biden and then transfer it over to Emmanuel Macron, who's trying to position himself once more as the more sensible of the G7 leaders, you know, inclusive uh, on the question of, um, of Ukraine. Well, Mr. Macron has reason to be afraid. Election results in Germany show the alliance for Deutschland making gains in the western part of Germany, not just in the east where they have strength. And Mr. Macron is feeling the hot breath of the National Front. Um, you know, those right wing formations in France, whatever name they go by now, they keep changing their name. But effectively, it's Marianne Le Pen and her crowd and people even to her right breathing heavily at the back of Mr. Macron. Can he do it? Um, I said Narendra Modi rescinded the invitation from Joe Biden and provided it to Macron. Mr. Modi gave a very interesting interview to the Financial Times where he said India is on the cusp of takeoff. Uh, interesting statement to come right after Mr. Modi's party had ejected over 140 parliamentarians uh, from the Indian parliament, from both the upper and lower house. Half the opposition members of parliament from the lower house were removed. In the middle of all this, the Indian government has decided to put even more pressure on our colleagues at NewsClick, um, having the income tax department do something completely uh, unheard of, which is place a big hole in the middle of NewsClick's finances, not allowing it to function. Uh, in fact, suppressing the press through administrative means. Take off in what way? You don't have an opposition sitting in parliament and you're telling the press to be silent. We're not silent here at Give the People What They Want. Brought to you from People's Dispatch, that's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, bringing you the world, but also hopefully bringing you a slice of humanity. See you next week. Over.